Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 147 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today's episode is so timely to me. I am just amazed at sometimes at how things work out. So if you all remember two weeks ago, I interviewed Cassie, Ella's mom. Now, Ella died of a very rare tumor, which the specific name I am not going to remember right now, but it was very closely related to a rhabdoid tumor. So she ended up being treated by pediatric oncologists, even though she was an adult, because rhabdoid tumors, although they are rare, are more common in kids. If you remember back, Cassie and her husband then started a foundation that really focuses on helping researchers for these rare cancers, like rhabdoid tumors. And they are helping these researchers really by having conferences where they can gather together and kind of learn about what people are doing so they can learn from each other and be able to more quickly really come up with new treatments for these rare, rare tumors. Today... I am really excited to speak with Sahar, Kian's mom. Now, little did I know when I booked this interview, but Kian too died of a rhabdoid tumor. And Kian's parents have also started a foundation to help raise money for research for these rare pediatric tumors. I just wanted to put this all in your head so that you could think about that a little bit as you are listening to Sahar talk about Kian. So although Kian was very, very young when he had his tumor, and Ella was an adult when she had her tumor, there are so many similarities. And the fact that the foundations that these parents both formed are so intertwined is just amazing. I found myself wondering if some of the people who attended the conference in France now are able to get money from Kian's parents from that organization as well. The world seems so big at times, but in other times it seems so, so small and our lives are just so intertwined. So right now I want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Sahar, Kian's mom. so much, Sahar, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I really look forward to talking. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, that's great. And you get to tell us about your little son, Kian, and I am so excited to hear about him. Oh, man. Kian is, he's wonderful. I mean, he came into this world a little, like, you know, just stubborn. He was like, (laughs) he wouldn't turn right so he wouldn't turn for the birth and so he was like jammed against a rib like not quite like ready to (laughs) 
<laughs> to make his entrance easily, you know, he, but he was, once he got here, he was just like this pile of love. You know, I have an older daughter uh-huh. and she was a, not a great sleeper. Okay. Had a lot of very loud demands and uh, <laughs> one of those needs to be met. And Keon was very easy. You know how they say oh, you, like parents always have an easy kid and like a kid that's, you know, a little bit more d- demanding or a little bit clearer of what their wants are. Uh-huh. And Keon was just super chill, super chill, very happy oh. baby, loved to nurse, loved to snuggle, was a pretty good sleeper. So as an infant, he was like a joy. I mean, his sister loved him. It was like, just a beautiful, cohesive experience that he kind uh-huh. of like brought into our family. How far apart are they in age? They are two years, four months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I was like nervous, right? Because you're like, when you have kids that are that close, like, will they fight all the time? Is there going to be a lot of jealousy? Like, you know, two-year-olds are, yeah. <laughs> you know, two-year-olds. Yeah. I had mine were two years, one month and the first yeah. two, and then it was May, June, July, two years, three months. So yeah, about the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the two-year-old is still very like attached to you, but independent, but like unable to c- clearly communicate what they need. And so like lots of meltdowns and then <laughs> you got a newborn who's like, uh-huh. it just actually really needs you to survive. <laughs> so. I know. I remember too, though, that within just a few weeks, actually, after Andy was born, she, my daughter looked at a family picture and said, where Andy, because he, she was like, Andy should be there. Like there shouldn't be a family picture in the house without Andy in it. And like, well, he wasn't here yet. He was, that was even before he was in mommy's tummy. But I thought, I, I thought at that moment, I thought, oh, we're good. We are yeah. good. Cause she, he, yeah. she feels like he's a permanent member of the family and any kind of picture of life before Andy should just not even be there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I know it's just like interesting, but yeah, Kian was just an easy baby, really happy. He was diagnosed like super early. And even through all that, you know, he was just, just a yeah. joyful, joyful baby. So, okay. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. So you said he was diagnosed early. He was diagnosed pretty young then. Yes. Wasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a little bit of a rough delivery <laughs> and then we got like this very happy baby. And I would say like almost uh, what from the outside was like a bit of an idyllic three months of experience. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I kept taking him to the pediatrician because I was like, you know, he's doing really well, but something just feels kind of off. And you know, they would do the belly checks and they would be like, well, he's gaining weight. He's fine. Nervous mom, like just take yeah. him home and love on your kid. It's totally cool. And so one day, you know, he was such a happy baby. There was one day that we had him and he just would not stop fussing and he didn't want to yeah. nurse and he didn't want to do anything else. And so I called the pediatrician. I was like, I have to bring them in. They're like, oh, it could be a sore throat. Do you want to wait until the morning? I'm like, no, yeah. I need to bring them in right now. Something is not right. Yeah. And so I, I took him in and like, it was almost immediate. They were like, we, they saw him and they basically sent us to the hospital for imaging. Oh. And so at that point, you know, we went into the, the hospital and I thought, you know, they're going to tell me it's gas. It's something weird. Like, I'm just nervous. You know, I was, I was hoping that they would confirm like that I was insane <laughs> and yeah. not that there was something actually like going on with my child. And so my husband met us at the hospital and he took him for his first set of imaging. And I will never forget like the look on Mike's face when he like walked in and I was like, oh no, this is not good. 
And he was like, listen, we got to do more. They're admitting us into, into the hospital and it looks like there might be a tumor. And so it was that day, like, you know, three months old, thought I had a perfectly healthy baby. He had just had his three month checkup, told me he was great. Yeah. And two weeks later, we're getting admitted into the oncology unit at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Where are you located again? Uh, Just outside of DC. Okay. Yeah. So that started this whole yeah. long, but not long journey then, didn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember going into that hospital or into the unit and I'm like a mess, right? I had just given birth three months ago, like talk about yeah. hormones and like I had a two and a half year old and, you know, breastfeeding and they were like, don't worry, don't worry. Like, you know, nine times out of 10, it's a Wilms tumor, highly curable, like, yeah. you know, our radiologists are the best, like, it's going to be okay. Like, don't worry, mom, you got this. And I'm like, okay. All right. Okay. And, you know, he had surgery. They were able to completely remove the tumor, which was on his kidney as well as, as well as the kidney. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that sinking feeling you get, like when you know, like you're some, like, you're just still waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're like, yeah can't possibly yeah. be this easy. Like I didn't just go through this for them be like, yeah, fine. No, no worries. Like one round of chemo may not even need chemo. And like, you're totally fine. Just how like sick he was when we came in for the diagnosis, I just knew something was like wrong. I mean, the doctors like pulled us in for, first of all, we had unscheduled testing that happened. And then they pulled us into a room with like several social workers. Mm-hmm. The doctor herself looked kind of nervous and concerned and they go, we're really sorry, but you're son has a malignant rhabdoid tumor, which is really rare. And we have not seen an infant survive this. Yeah. And it was just devastating. I mean, he was such a happy, beautiful child that brought so much love into our home. And then to hear them say, you know, six to eight months was like soul crushing. Yeah. So they did try some treatments though, didn't they? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so they give us this diagnosis and like, of course, like I'm just sitting there crying, like, oh my God, my baby, my baby, my baby. Right. And then that, all right, well, there's catastrophe right now, but I, I got to like get the next steps and kind of like move on. I mean, my dad was with us at the apartment. He just like flat out left the room. He was like, just in shock and like processing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I honestly can't remember. I think Mike was just like, yeah, un- like unable to speak. And I just like looked at the doctor. I was like, okay, so what's next? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. What do we do? And she was like, well, we're going to, we're going to go through like chemotherapy. We're going to try this, this type. We're going to do nine rounds of chemo and then we're going to do radiation and we're going to hope that it doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Oh, and we have to do all like this genetic testing. Cause when it presents in like children that are this age, it's likely mm-hmm. a genetic compound. So then of course, like you're worried about your daughter and then like yourselves and mm-hmm. all future children and all the other things that all of a sudden come up when you hear the word genetics. Right. And a week after that, we started treatment. So he, he went into the hospital and of course there, and then there's, you know, like a brain MRI and all this other stuff. And it's all just very terrifying. So yeah. Kian did really well. He went through nine rounds of chemo, Mm -hmm. no delays, no sickness, like no septicemia or any of the things that are common when 
a person undergoes chemo and he did that all in six months. Wow. Yep. He was so strong. He was like throughout this all super happy, thriving, gaining weight, just a very, very amazing child. Right. Mm -hmm. I took him to his pediatrician and his pediatrician was like, I'm surprised he doesn't have any even social delays being in and out of hospital so much, but that's just, I think he had so much, we, we had so much support around us that, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we were really fortunate in that regard. So he went through all of his treatment, got a clean bill of health, went into remission and then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. He was still in remission. And I have to say like, it was a little bit of a little bit of a blessing being on lockdown with each other because we were forced to spend so much time as a family and find yeah. joy in ways that were not like instinctive to us, right? So normally it's like, oh, go to this birthday party or go do that thing or take him to this thing. And then said it was like, well, we're just in the woods. Like, yeah, right. For right. us, like playing in a pond. And then in September of 2020, he unfortunately relapsed. Yeah. Which was honestly, they said a shock to the doctors, the doctor. I remember she was like, I just didn't expect this. He was doing so well. And we normally see this cancer come back much faster, much sooner. Yeah. So they were sort of hopeful that he was going to kind of, you know, be a little miracle and not, not recur. Hmm. Yes. And I, I mean, I already think like he had beaten so many odds, right. They didn't think he was going to make it to one. Right. And so he made it to one and he made it to two, like, (laughs) Really? Yeah, he made it to two. I mean, he passed two weeks after his second birthday, but I mean, he made it. Yeah, he sure did. He sure did. That is really amazing that he went that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it was amazing. I remember throughout his treatment, I think that, you know, my personal belief is like our thoughts and our actions kind of help carry us, right? When things are really hard. And I used to write quotes and affirmations and like put them all over his hospital wall. So every time we'd be there for treatment, I would, I would just put those on there. And as we're like walking around holding the baby, I would just like read them around out loud. Like I'm praying for patience and guidance or, you know, you are a miracle and just things like that. And I, I mean, I don't know how else we would have gone through it, but I, I can't help I, you know, I want to believe that that's part of what helped kind of propel him and our family as we were dealing with all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when it did recur, was it then relatively quickly that he passed? He relapsed on September 1st and then he passed on January 2nd. Okay. So there was four months of mm-hmm. like official recurrence. I, I kind of knew something was wrong. I called the doctors in July being like, Hey, something feels weird again. And they're like, well, is he eating? I was like, yeah. Is he sleeping? Yes. Is he playing? Yeah. Okay. Well just bring them in for the next scan. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, I think that, I don't know that mommy radar is so important. I know I trust that so much. Yeah. You know, as a pediatrician, I feel like, and, and I think probably a little more so now after losing Andy, probably even more than I used to just after having spoken to so many moms. And I always feel kind of bad because I think I'm quicker to do a scan or do a lab or do anything because I know far too many people whose children have died. So I always feel a little bit bad sometimes when I See parents, because I think if you would have gotten somebody else, they probably wouldn't be quite as freaked out as I am. But <laughs> and I will apologize on occasion, but they're usually actually quite 
thankful that I'm just like really worried, but yes. I do feel like I'm a little bit, I have gone the opposite direction now than I probably should have. I would tell you if you were our pediatrician, I'd be so thankful because like, that's what we want. That's like what I personally want is someone to take the anxiety and hold it for me, you know, and be like, yeah. Don't worry. like I'll let you know when it's time to worry. And I'm like 10 times more worried than you are. <laughs> so. Okay. You know what? That makes me feel a little better. Yeah, no, totally. Because that is exactly what I do. I take on that anxiety quite a bit. And I'm like, I need to do a scan of the head or I'm not going to be able to yeah. sleep tonight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I really do take that on. That makes me feel better. Thank you so much, Zahar. Now, now I'm not feeling quite as, of course, as okay. guilty that I should, that I'm jumping the gun a little bit. So and I have to say, I loved Keon's oncology team. They were yeah. fantastic. You know, his doctor was one of those people who was like, I would rather be overly cautious and concerned, give you the peace of mind to be more present with your child, knowing that I've got it mm-hmm. than a little bit more like, you know, just wait and see. So, I mean, they really like did not have anything. And I mean, it could have just been the tumor at that point might've even been too small to have kept caught on a scan. Right. And then it could have been worse. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I definitely don't like doubt their decision to do this. It is just one of those things that you're like, Oh, I wish we had a way to scientifically test like mommy spider sense, you know, (laughs) (laughs) in a way that wasn't intrusive and conclusive and you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely appreciate our doctors and everything. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I think about that, you know, that very first visit that you had about her seeming like she was uncomfortable. This is the, the same doctor mm-hmm. that she was like uncomfortable telling you and things like that. Mm-hmm. And coming in with the whole team like she did. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that I've been, it's been really on my heart and I've been talking about it a little bit recently in the podcast about trying to help healthcare providers maybe do that a little bit better because we're really not trained to do that. You'd think they would really know exactly what they're doing, but they really just don't. Um, right. Yeah. So I feel for the team. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. And I have to, you know, give credit where it's due. I don't know if I could do it, right? I don't know if I could be a pediatrician or an oncologist or an oncologist or any of that stuff, because I do feel like those doctors do a little bit emotionally attached to these kids, right? So like their successes or, you know, their, the milestones that they reach, the milestones they don't reach affect them just as not just as much, but they affect them. Like they affect the parents and the rest of the family. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, very much so. When you yeah. have a patient that has a hard diagnosis, it is hard on you. Yeah, absolutely. And that is important to try to kind of figure out how to care for yourself in those instances too. And I d- talked to that, uh, just a group of physicians and nurses and recently about that and about delivering bad news and especially the bad news that your child or your loved one has died and how it's not always the best thing to come in with the social worker and the chaplain and whatever, yeah. because yeah. it gets it off on this. Like sometimes I think they don't even hear you, they, especially yeah, if it's a chaplain. Yeah. <laughs> if it's a chaplain, you look at the collar, the cross, the whatever, and you're like, okay, no, 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 no. Right. And you're just like, not even hearing what's happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. say that's true. Every time a chaplain would walk in when Kian was even doing well, I'd be like, please leave. Like, I don't need counseling right now. I just need to <laughs> stay in like this happy thought bubble that I've created. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think it's great. And and what I suggested actually to this these people that I spoke with, I said, I would suggest that you have the chaplain come with you, but mm-hmm. have them stay in the hallway. Yes. And then you go through your conversation and then you say, there's a chaplain in the hallway. Would you like to speak with him or her? Yeah. And then give that option because then they would be like, oh yeah, I think that sounds good. Or no, I don't think I can do that right now. And, right. and, and I was thinking very much about you. So I listened to you on another podcast that yeah. you, you were on with a friend of yours, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We should give her a little shout out. What's the podcast? Uh, it's called Trigger to Life by Cami Wolf, and she is okay. amazing. So, <laughs> so uh, there we go. So I listened to that, and I heard you talk about, and now you've shared it again today, about the different responses that you had when you were all told that. You know, you said mm-hmm. Grandpa left the room. Yeah, Dad, you're not really sure what was happening. He was just kind of in shock and numb, and you were like, "Okay, what do we do next?" Yeah. And how important it is to be able to read the family and know where they are Yeah. because sometimes doctors are quick to do, okay, this is what we do next because they're so uncomfortable with the entire situation and like, okay, let's just go into treatment. Yeah. And sometimes families aren't ready for that. Now I did use you, not your name as an example on someone who was ready and needed to do that very first thing needed to go like, okay, this is what we do next. And and then I said, but now be patient with that same person. If in a few hours or in a few days, now you need to backtrack and like, okay, I need to take this all in. Right. Totally. But yet had you both been in your husband's shoes or certainly grandpa or whatever, the better choice would have been to sit in the moment for a while and right. And to be there Yes. If you're not ready to go on, okay, this is what we're going to do. Then we just need to be present and just need to know I'm here for you. This is hard. I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of information that you can't take right now or you don't want right now. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that that's such a delicate dance, especially when you've got multiple personalities Mm -hmm. and processing styles in the room. So difficult to navigate, right? Like I can't even, I can't always navigate it even within my own family. Like, cause we all have different processing styles. Right. And it's a lot to ask someone who doesn't know you all that well to like, you know, mm-hmm. meet where you, each of you where you're at. Right. So. Right. And to yeah. try to read, read the room a little bit as to what you need to do and yeah. making sure that as best as you can, various people are getting what they need in the moment. Yeah. Right. And knowing that you may be absorbing, these are the next steps or what we're going to need to do, but the other people in the room may not have absorbed that at all. Totally. And that is, and then you may have to revisit it many times and revisit a lot of different situations. So yes. Yes. I, yeah. I think that's like great advice is just trying to read the room, meeting them where they're at, and then understanding there might be like a little backtracking or repetition or, you know, reminding <laughs> For sure. For sure. I mean, I can certainly think back. I can, I will always remember the words that were said to me by the paramedic when Andy died. I will always remember the exact words. There's no question in my mind. But after that, I have absolutely no clue what he said. None. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So I really don't know. I think I, there was definitely something about are there people you need to call? And then we had to try to track down where a phone was and those types of logistical things. But I'm sure there were other things said. I just don't have any recollection of it at all. So, I mean, how could you like the worst imaginable 
mm-hmm. thing for a parent. You know, when you hear those things, you're just, I remember when they told us we were getting admitted and I don't know if this is how you felt, but I felt like the floor had just gone from underneath me. Like I knew I was walking and I knew I was in a hospital, but I was like disassociated from it. Right. And it was like, have you ever seen the movie like labyrinth with David Bowie? I don't think so. I don't think so. Go ahead though. Cause lots of people probably have. Okay. Well, there's a scene where like, he's walking around and like the stairs keep shifting and people get topsy turvy and uh-huh. they're chase. It's like a chase scene. And, and that's how I felt. I felt like, even though I knew I was upright and there was still this concept of gravity, I felt like my feet were up, my head was down and the floor was actually like mush, you know? So, totally relate to that. I like the, it was the ambulance. The ambulance was like, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, nothing seemed really real at all. Right. At that yeah. moment. Uh-uh. Yeah. I couldn't think. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, I remember that moment. And then I remember getting into the hemoc, uh, hematology oncology unit, but I don't really remember the in-between. Cause I think I was just like, you know, yeah. in outer space. I don't even know. <laughs> like, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move ahead now and talk about kind of those times right after Kian died and yeah, um, yeah, that grief. Mm -hmm. I think we were, I mean, it sounds weird to say, right. Because like, I don't want to sound like I'm making light of this or we were really fortunate in the fact that he did not have like a prolonged relapse or even a prolonged I would say like an immediate dying period. Right. Because, you know, you do talk to some, some families that sit in pediatric cancer care and their kids suffer agonizing pain for Mm -hmm. many, many, many months. Mm -hmm. And Keon for the most part was pretty, pretty good up until like, I would say three weeks before he passed. And he was still good then. Like he was still running around and playing. And it was really the last like four days of his life. Wow. That's amazing, actually, that he was still playing. Amazing. I mean, I fought hard for him, man. Like I, they gave him a G, so, you know, like the, there's a G tube. Mm-hmm. Well, they gave him a GJ. So like oh, every time mm-hmm. they wanted to do that, it was like going under fluoroscope and like, oh, you know, God. the radiologist had to like thread it in and get it past a certain point. I fought for the GJ tube. So he wouldn't have to do that. Cause every time he threw up the tube would come out and then we'd have to go take him in and hold him down while they like, yeah this thing. And it was just, it was not, you know, so I was like, you know, it's a surgical thing, but it would give him more freedom in his face and right. it would give us like the ability. And, you know, I remember the doctor, his doctor came to hospice and I was like, did I make the right calls? And she looked at me and she was like, and this is probably like such a validating feeling. She was like, you went against my better, my better judgment and did what I now believe it was the right thing for your son. Mm-hmm. We had so many, I feel like graces given to us and like how well he did up until like the last four days of his life. I never really went to, he's going to die. I was like, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. And then Uh when I got there, I was like, I was like, okay, I have to like be here to support him through it. Right. And so I remember the social worker coming and being like, you have to give him permission to pass. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I don't really want to give him permission to pass. Right. Like who wants to tell your kid like, okay, yeah, sure. But I remember laying in the bed with him. And at that point he was, we had to put him into like a kind of like a medically induced sleep. I I don't Mm want to call it a coma, but like he was just, he had like what they called restless death syndrome. So he was, even though he was on a ton of medications, he would not sleep. Oh, wow. 
And so we were carrying around for like three days in hospice. And at that point, like we couldn't anymore. Like we, none of us had slept. And so they, they sedated him for us. And I remember laying in bed with him and I told him like, you know, they keep telling me, I need to tell you it's okay. And then, and I told him, I said, you know, I, I support your choice. I support like what you need to do and what you want to do. And if you think it's now your time to go, like, you know, we're here, we love you, we support you. And it's safe. It is safe to make that pass. Yeah. Yeah. What a hard thing to have to say. But even having that opportunity is a grace, right? Because as, as you all know, you don't always get that. Yeah. I can't, you know, I can't help but not see all those beautiful silver linings in, in all of, in all of our experience, as much as I ache and, and miss my child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I actually, I'm sure people said to you or judged you a bit, like, she needs to get ready. She needs to prepare for this. She needs to, oh, you know, yes. that. And when I have talked with other people, other parents who have lost kids to illnesses like this, they, you know, I think of my friend, good friend, Stephanie, who was in therapy for a long time to try to prepare for her daughter's death. And she said she really couldn't when it came right down to it, she couldn't. So right. she did all of this prep work. She saw the therapist. She did all this stuff. Like I'm ready. We're ready. Yeah. yeah. And then her daughter died. And, and actually, you know, it's funny. It's her daughter's Kian. Oh, <laughs> not, not spelled the same at all, but, and not Kian, yeah. but Kian. Yeah. Anyway, she said she died. And the first thing she thought was, oh, no, 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 no. I guess I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Five more minutes. Five minutes. Right. Five more minutes. So that's what's really astounding to me is like, you don't need to pressure yourself in some way to get ready. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to get ready because I think the idea of wrapping your head around the idea of your child dying before you is impossible to really grasp. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So to have people force you to try to go there is not really helpful. Right. Yes, absolutely. I remember hospice would come and they'd be like, here's a book on preparing yourself for a death of a loved one, or like, you know, how to talk to a loved one about their imminent death. And I'm like, I'm not there yet. Like, and I won't be there until I have to be there. Right. Because as, as long as there is, he is still breathing air into his lungs and his heart is beating, I believe that there's still hope and a chance because miracles happen. Right. And so I remember like, I basically told hospice one day, I was like, just leave, like either get on my party boat or get off the boat and leave me alone. And let me try to be as present as I can with my children without preparing for something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Well, and I think it's fine either way. Certainly. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to judge either way. And that oh, I think yeah, is the key, absolutely. Yeah, That's absolutely. The key is yeah. to just not judge either way, because yeah. even mm-hmm. if you did as much prep and you read all of those books and you did all of that stuff, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't have really been ready. Totally. So hundred percent. I, I think that that goes back to what you're saying with respect to doctors and people receiving like devastating news is like meet individual where they're at instead of trying to lead them to somewhere where they're not able to go. Right. Which is, I felt like I was 
they were trying to lead me somewhere where I was not ready to go. And it's like, Mm -hmm. and and you're right. There's absolutely no judgment. You know, my husband had anticipatory grief. So he had grieved Keon's death before it happened. So for him, Mm -hmm. those materials were probably much more useful and like helpful than they were for me. And again, like you said, no right or wrong, just being able to meet each individual. Yeah. I think back to even when I lost my own mother. So my mother died over Christmas of my junior year in college. And my dad actually started dating again relatively quickly and was married actually seven and a half months after my mom died. So very, very and I remember when he sat me down and told me that he was kind of engaged and getting married, which is now, you know, six months after my mom's death, she said, he said, I grieved your mom a long time before she died. And my mom definitely gave him permission. Like she knew his personality. It was going to be really difficult to be alone. And so she was like, well, she would tease him. Like your next wife's going to be a blonde and all of this kind of (laughs) stuff. He, she would talk to him about his next wife. Yeah. But what is, was difficult was that he and I were not on the same page there with that. right? Right. So that was really difficult for me to see him now engaged to be married, not even six months after my mom's death, because I wasn't ready for that, but he was in a different place and his grief was certainly different than mine. And I can't judge him on that just because I couldn't do that. He could, and he did. And he's been married to this woman now for a very, very long time. So yeah, it's, it's hard though, right? Like it's hard. It's hard because, you know, I don't know if you felt like this, but with Mike, I felt like he couldn't understand, like we could not understand one another to even have the compassion and non-judgment. Right. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work to get there. Yeah. I like how you said that, that you couldn't even understand each other to, to get that Mm -hmm. point, to even have the conversation. And I've spoken to others who are like that, that they, the couples that they're husband and wife, and they're on such different pages and grieving yeah. so differently that they can't even see how the other one is doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's very hard to hold space for a partner when you are grieving the same thing, right? Because yeah. you want validation on how you feel and how you want to move. And that person may not be able to give it to you in, in that moment. Not that they mm-hmm. can't ever, but just there <laughs> this one moment where you need it, they may not be able to. And yeah. And that is so, so key about telling your partner what you need, if you can, I, you know, I, we've been going through a very hard time here recently with Andy's 18th birthday and graduation and a lot of stuff happening. And so it's been a very emotional time. And, you know, I had an interaction with somebody and I was just upset and sad and grieving. And, you know, I was saying something to Eric about it and he started to try to kind of cheer me up a little bit. And I said, I need you to stop right there. Yeah. I just need you to be here for me and to be sad with me just for a bit. And he totally did. I mean, we've been going through this enough that he heard me say that and he completely changed his tune and just let me be sad with him, which is what I needed at the moment. I mean, at first he was doing that 
kind of husbandly thing that I think a lot of men feel like, like I need to make things better. I need yeah. to cheer her up and make her feel better. And it was only when I actually, I said, and I even said this, I said, Eric, stop. Yeah. I just, I mean, I very clearly, I said, I don't need that from you right now. I just need you to be upset with me. Yeah. And he was like, okay. And then he went there and he was perfect. And it was the perfect thing. But I, I feel like I've been doing this long enough now that I could just say to him, just quit. Because yeah. if I had let him go on, I would have ended up getting angry with him. And it, and right. I wasn't, there was nothing to be angry with him about, but I think it can naturally start to happen. Totally. So, and I'm so glad that he was good enough and healthy enough that when I said, stop, he didn't get angry with me. Yeah. I was going to say, it's so beautiful that you guys were able to each like, uh, come to that place together. Yeah. Like, this is what I need from you right now. And he's like, okay, I can do that. Let's just be upset together. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, And, and that, that was just such a beautiful moment for me. So I encourage as much as I possibly can to try to have that open communication and, and hopefully not offend somebody when you say, stop, that's not what I need from you right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Boundaries, <laughs> boundaries are important. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So let's talk about the foundation a little bit. Yes. And how yeah. that kind of started and yeah. just those first stages of that. So I feel like I kind of fell into this. Keon passed away and I was like, I can't get flowers. I mean, I think I've said this so many times now to various people because everyone's like, how do I get started? I was like, I didn't want flowers. I did not want people to send flowers to my house. I love flowers, right? Like yeah. I love flowers yeah. and I don't want to associate them with like my son's past. <laughs> well, you know what I had a problem with is I had a problem with, I didn't want to watch them die. Yes. I didn't want to watch the flowers die. Percent. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a kind of a green thumb for herbs, right? But every time yeah. I get an orchid, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I read and what instructions I follow, the damp, sorry, the darn thing dies. Right. And it makes me feel worse. Right. Right. Someone gave me this beautiful gift and like, and I just killed it into my care and I killed it. Right. And of course I've killed every flower, every plant, but two, I have two left from the funeral. All the rest of them are dead. Right. And it makes you feel awful. It makes you feel awful because it was given to you in remembrance of a person that you lost and then you lose yeah. the thing that was given to <laughs> I mean I could like really spiral right like <laughs> right 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 well, um, and the cut flowers are worse because those you just watch them you wilt just watch and them go. all the petals yeah. fall off and them turn brown so yeah. sad yeah uh-huh. I know I was too many I, I was creating too many uh, analogies in my head like with the thought of getting flowers to be like I can't live like this <laughs> so I, I just did we got a lot of flowers at the funeral home and at the funeral yeah. And I pretty much gave all of them away, like as quickly as I could, because just the idea of watching them. Yeah. Wilt just was so hard. Yeah. That was smart. So I, you know, I think you could tell by my previous story about how we reacted to diagnosis. I'm very much a, okay, get into action mode. And I was like, I don't want flowers. So what do I do? What do I want? Right. And I was like, well, I want, I want his passing to mean something more than it means to just me. Yep. And so Mike and I talked, we actually were talking a bit about this, like as he was transit, as Keanu's passing. And like, we both agreed that we would like to find some place to 
make a difference in Kian's name. And so I think a day or so after he passed, I called his oncologist and I was like, please give me some options. Like, I don't want to get flowers. I want to redirect people. I need to do it quickly because people are going to want to do something. Mm-hmm. And she gave me the options. And one of the options was with Dana Farber, with one of the doctors that consulted on Kian's case. Her name is Dr. Dr. Mullen. And she is just the most amazing human being. I remember when we went to see her for a second opinion, she gave us, she, first of all, like we were 45 minutes late to the appointment and she didn't truncate our time. I mean, it was in Boston. So it was like a big trip. She didn't truncate our time. She like held our hands. She, you know, um, had somebody else, like I think answering her pages, like, so that she could be fully focused unless there was like an emergency she had to like take care of. I mean, it was just the type of treatment you want from a doctor that sees you as a human and not like a clinical number or, you know, a a family with a sick kid. And she gave us like such hope. I remember she palpated his belly and she goes, it's still soft, like eight weeks out from like initial diagnosis. She goes, this is good reason to be hopeful. And I said, like nobody else had given that to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when doctor, when, when his primary oncologist told us this, I was like, that's where the money should go to Dr. Mullen and her renal tumor fund so that it can be directed to, to do this. So we started a a giving page with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Mm -hmm. And I told Dr. Mullen on that phone, I mean, she probably thought I was grief stricken and like crazy, but I was like, listen, I have huge decision fatigue. I need this money to go to someone I trust, which is you. And I want to raise a hundred thousand dollars. And she was like, yeah, yeah, you know, even $20 makes a difference, which it does. It totally does. We say this all the time to our donors, like, you know, a dollar makes a difference to us. And she's like, Mm -hmm. you know, just take your time. Don't (laughs) And then, and then we started. And I think within like, I think within four months, we raised like close to 46,000. Wow. And then, and then we did our first event, um, for Dana Farber in the May, in May of last year, um, mother's day weekend of 2021. And we raised like over $20,000 at that event. I ended up shaving my hair off to raise money. <laughs> and then I was like, this feels like really good and in, in alignment with my purpose in like life, a broader, a broader thing to do. And something that gives me so much joy to give back and honors Kian. And, and really it's, it's just being yeah. I mean, it just, it really, it, it brings us a lot of joy as a family. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I want to do more. I have all these ideas, all these partnerships I want to foster. Mike had, you know, he was really adamant, like, you know, raising money for pediatric cancer research is great, but what about the families that need treatment now? And and that's kind of how it started with like, well, do we form our own nonprofit? Yeah. And, and we did, we, we started in the summer of last year, thinking about the names and branding and like kind of our mission statements. Mm-hmm. And we officially launched in September of, uh, 2021. So, okay. um, nine months in and oh, yeah. Yeah. And we hit the hundred thousand dollar goal last year. So that was super exciting for us. And I'm sure for Dana Farber, um, and it's, it's nice to see how kind of our mission has evolved. You know, it, it's twofold. So, you know, we are obviously going, we're going to continue supporting pediatric cancer research with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute mm-hmm. and in very, very specific types of research initiatives. And we're lending support to families that have kids in treatment and care, families and caregivers that have kids are impacted by kids that are in treatment. So we've been sending meals to the hospital staff. We have a form that families can fill out if they need to receive meals or some help around, you know, help with nourishment, they can definitely reach out. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's when their kids are kind of going through the treatments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's when ki- your kids are going through treatment. I mean, it was like the one thing that Mike and I felt like to have a nutritious meal dropped off that you didn't have to mm-hmm. clean after or do anything is like a game changer, right? No one had to cook. No one had to go to the grocery store. I didn't necessarily feel bad about throwing out food because it had gone bad in the fridge because I didn't get a chance to cook it. You know, it's just one of those things. It's very simple. Get a meal delivered, have dinner with your family, and then the cleanup is fast, right? And you can just try to focus on being present as opposed to now I got to do the dishes and whatever else. Like, Yeah, I, I think about that too. Obviously, when after Andy died, we had a wonderful meal train that, that went on for months from my church yeah. and my friends, and that was extremely helpful. But, you know, I have a foster son who underwent a kidney transplant, and it, he had his kidney transplant in on the 14th of June. And um, what year was it now? It's been five years ago now, so 20 or maybe six years, 2016, 2017. A- anyway, he... I had this kidney transplant and he had a lot of complications. So I didn't miss much work. Honestly, I would go to work and then immediately after work, I would be at the hospital. And I would oftentimes, most of the time I'd spend the night in the hospital. I would get up, I would go to work. I was doing all of the like normal stuff. Yeah. But yet I was hardly seeing the rest of my family because one of yeah. us was always in the hospital with him. He was there two, three weeks, and then he was home for a few days and then he was back in. I mean, that summer he was hospitalized three or four times. So it was a really hard summer. And it's funny because no one thought like, Hey, maybe some meals would be helpful to her Yeah, because I was still showing up and seeing my patients and doing normal stuff, but yeah. no one thought about the fact that that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something because that would have been really helpful to me had the hospital maybe offered that because obviously they were getting to know us pretty well because we'd been there a long time in that, in that unit. And had we been asked that I probably would have taken them up on it, but it was hard for me to ask my coworkers and friends and church, like, Hey, you know what? I, I really would appreciate somebody feeding my family because now I'm spending the time with Valeriano and I'm feeling really guilty because I've got three other kids at home and my husband and they're, they're not getting decent meals because I'm here so much. Right. Right. And you know, when you have a long-term diagnosis or something that's not like a death or, you know, something that's like very sudden and tragic when it's something that you kind of learn or that you live with, people forget that it still adds or detracts mm-hmm. from like the other avenues of your life. Right. And it, it's, it's like this with pediatric cancer treatment, right? Families spend months at the hospital, depending on the type of treatment, we would be there for weeks, but there are families that spend 30 days in treatment at the hospital. And so they either have other kids and other family members that are home yeah. that still need support and a good meal. But like from the outside, unless you are familiar with what treatment looks like, you think they're just, yeah kind of managing it all because that's what it looks like. You just integrate it into your life, but it doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means you still need more support, right? Yeah. I I remember now after this was all done and things were better, one of our nurses had a child get a very bad illness and she had a lot of other kids at home. And we, the office did do like a little meal thing for her and and offer that. And I remember saying to the, like some of the other 
you know, my office manager and things like that. I said, you know, I'm glad we're doing that. That would have been really helpful to me. I mean, I actually said that because, and I don't think people thought about that either because I'm like a doctor. And so I should be able to, I don't know, I have more money that I could pay for meals or whatever, but that's not the same. Right. And just because what I really needed was some love kind of show to to our family. It doesn't really matter what your financial situation is. And if I could afford to get my family pizza every night, because honestly, I could have afforded to give my family pizza every night, but yeah, that's not what I want to do. That's not how. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not the financial component, right? It's the, it's the mental fatigue of having to make yet another decision for your loved ones. Or or worry that it's like not a nutritious one, because again, you're tired, you're already making critical decisions, either in your day job, (laughs) and then for like a child that like needs a little bit of extra love and like, and for yourself. And then it's nice to have someone come in and be like, here, here's a meal that your family will love. And you don't have to think about it just. And and I now can be less stressed because I know that my family's eating there and I'm not feeling this torn, like I should be with the other kids. Right. right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's really, it's a strange thing that happened that, that shouldn't have happened, but you feel this guilt. Like after Andy died, I thought to myself, man, I almost missed a whole summer with him because of yeah. being with Valeriano and the kidney transplant. And yeah. I mean, what a stupid thought to have, but I'm thinking to myself, Oh, I wish I would have had that time. Right. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. I wasn't going right. to have that time. I didn't yeah. know this was going to happen. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think about that. All, yep. You know, I shouldn't have gone back to work. I should have stayed home for those two years. I should have. Right. Yeah. Cause you're like, you know, and not that I regret, right. obviously my foster son needed support in the hospital. I mean, he would call me and say, when are you coming? He did not like being there by himself. Especially he's from Guatemala. His English wasn't the best. I mean, we are his only support system in this community. And so I needed to be there for him, but you do have this, these thoughts like, Oh, I shouldn't have missed these regrets. Like if I only would have known, I would have spent more time. I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. Totally. I think it's part of just losing a child. They end up with these silly regrets, but I mean, I'd say that I think it's even part of having, being a parent of multiples, right? Because I have regrets over having to prioritize Keon, even though he passed mm-hmm. and missing out time with Yara. Yeah. And in a way that I couldn't integrate them both into the experience, right? I couldn't take her to her hospital visits, especially not during the pandemic, right? Like, right. They wouldn't let you. Yeah. I, Mike and I could barely go together and we had a child under the age of two. You know? So right. Uh, parenting is probably the best one of the most wonderful experiences of my life and also the most heartbreaking for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, so um, tell us the name of the organization. Yeah, sorry. Uh, we organization's cool. name is, <laughs> it is like sitting in your living room having a conversation. I'm just kind of, you know, chatting away with us. I know, I know. The organization's name is RAR for Kian. It comes from, Uh he had a little dinosaur buddy that he called RAR and he used to like hide behind uh, like corners and then he'd pop out and go RAR. (laughs) So we just wanted to really invite some playfulness to it. Cancer is a very serious topic. Pediatric cancer is extremely 
exhausting for families and scary. And, and we still wanted to be able to like embody some of that Kian energy and joy. So it's kind of like what we went through is like having something that was a bit more playful and it's spelled R-A-W-R. So like really like RAR. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> RAR for Kian. And then you help families just basically in that, that hospital system that you were associated with. No, it could be any family. Um, we have sent meals to some family families, I think in North Carolina, maybe so far, but like, you know, we're, we're, we're open and happy to help any families that need help. So if anyone wants to go to rarforkeon.org, there is a sign up sheet there, if you know, a family that would like to receive a family that's in pediatric cancer care that would like to receive meals or caregivers in that community talking about hospital staff, please go ahead, fill out the form, reach out to us. We'd love to help. Yeah. So you're just kind of trying to expand and you're just starting. We're just starting. We're just, we want this to be a very nourishing experience for our families and our caregivers that are impacted by pediatric cancer. I just think it's beautiful. I am so excited to get to help kind of spread the word about this and help people think about it because it is important to be able to care for, care for the whole family, not just the child. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was truly a pleasure. Oh, thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.